You're listening to a Sovereign Hope Church podcast with pastor and teaching elder Adam Vinson. Good morning. If you have your Bibles, I want to invite you to turn to Exodus chapter 25. Exodus chapter 25. We're actually going to cover content for chapter 25, 26, and 27. So I told you that as we get deeper into Exodus, we're going to pick up the pace in the content that we're covering each week. We're not going to obviously read through three chapters of Scripture this morning. Um, so we'll start reading in verse 25, but um, hopefully we can see the, the overall theme of what these chapters are about and tie it all in together. And then I would encourage you in leaving today to maybe go back through and read through all of chapter 25 26 and 27. But I draw your attention to chapter 25, verse 1. If you haven't been with us, just to kind of set the context, we have been looking at the exile of the Israelites and the freedom that they now enjoy as God went into Egypt and rescued them through Moses, uh, bringing them into the wilderness so they can now become his people. So they're learning what it means to worship him. They're learning what it means to follow him. And he's setting up Uh, what's going to be the parameters for what it looks like to be his people, to be a holy nation. And so chapter 24, we left off a couple of weeks ago with uh, them at the foot of the mountain with some of their leadership going uh, higher up onto the mountain to enjoy fellowship with God. We saw that meal that the elders had with God and how they weren't killed, even though they could have been, that God spared their lives and allowed them to eat with him on the mountain. And then we left off with Moses being called further up with instructions being given to the people, hey, live in obedience until Moses comes back down from the mountain. And so he's going to be up there 40 days and 40 nights being given instructions that we're going to see today regarding specifically the tabernacle. Uh, And then eventually we'll get into the priesthood as well. But in chapter 25, verse 1, it says, the Lord said to Moses, speak to the people of Israel that they take for me a contribution. From every man whose heart moves him, you shall receive the contribution for me. And this is the contribution that you you shall receive from them, gold, silver, and bronze, blue and purple scarlet yarns, and fine twined linen, goat's hair, tanned ram skins, goat skins, acacia wood, oil for the lamps, spices for the anointing oil, and for the fragrant incense, onyx stones, and stones for setting, for the ephod, for the breastpiece, and let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst. Exactly as I show you concerning the pattern of the tabernacle and all of its furniture, you shall make it. They shall make an ark of acacia wood. Two cubits and a half shall be its length and a cubit and a half its breadth and a cubit and a half its height. You shall overlay it with pure gold inside and outside shall you overlay it and you shall make on it a molding of gold around it. You shall cast four rings of gold for it and put them on its four feet, two rings on the one side of it and two rings on the other side of it. You shall make poles of acacia wood and overlay them with gold. And you shall put the poles into the rings on the sides of the ark to carry the ark by them. The poles shall remain in the rings of the ark. They shall not be taken from it. And you shall put into the ark the testimony that I shall give you. You shall make a mercy seat of pure gold. Two cubits and a half shall be its length and a cubit and a half its breadth. And you shall make two cherubim of gold of hammered work shall you make them on the two ends of the mercy seat. Make one cherub on the one end and one cherub on the other. Of one piece with the mercy seat shall you make the cherubim on its two ends. 
The cherubim shall spread out their wings above, overshadowing the mercy seat with their wings, their faces one to another. Toward the mercy seat shall the faces of the cherubim be. And you shall put the mercy seat on top of the ark. And in the ark you shall put the testimony that I shall give you. There I will meet with you. And from above the mercy seat, from between the two cherubim that are on the ark of the testimony, I will speak with you about all that I will give you in commandment for the people of Israel. Our summary sentence for today, God's mission is to be with his people. But because he is holy and his people are sinful, the only way to restore his presence in the life of his people is through a meeting place where both justice and mercy can be found together. God's mission is to be with his people, but because he's holy and his people are sinful, the only way to restore his presence in the life of his people is through a meeting place where both justice and mercy can be found together. For our kids, God wants to be with his people and makes that possible through Jesus. I'm also going to encourage our kids as they're sitting with us today and listening and learning that there's going to be some opportunities for you to draw some specific pictures for me today, okay? So we're talking about two things today specifically. One, the tabernacle, and that's where the Old Testament people worshiped, okay? So as you're listening today, I want you to try to draw me a a solid good picture of what the tabernacle might have looked like. And then specifically in the tabernacle, we're going to talk about the Ark of the Covenant, okay? This is where the, the, the atonement sacrifice was offered for God's people. It was stored in the Holy of Holies, and it's where the priest would go one time a year to offer that sacrifice. And so we're going to talk about it. I'm going to show you some pictures, but I want our kids to try to do their best to, to draw what we're talking about today, just so hopefully it'll, it'll kind of resonate with them uh, long term as well. Exodus 25 through 27, okay? So we just read a portion of chapter 25, but if you go on through this chapter, you'll see that there are instructions given for the table for bread and the golden lampstand, uh, more instructions for the construction of the overall tabernacle uh, you get into in verse 26, and then verse 27, some things that take place outside of the tabernacle uh, structure where you've got altars and, and other things set up outside as you would enter into the holy place and then the holy of holies. So think of it with me this way. God begins to reveal to Moses from the innermost part of the tabernacle and works his way out in his description. So what we've just read is things that are taking place in the innermost part, which is the most important part. Okay, this is where God will meet with his people is what we're told. Okay, so in that Holy of Holies, we've got that uh, Ark of the Covenant being described. And then we're going to talk about what it looks like to work your way out from that setting. But in Exodus chapter 25, 26, and 27, there's a theme that we see. And it's a theme of God taking steps to reestablish his presence in the life of his people. The idea that we're seeing today is what it means for God to be with us. The tabernacle, particularly this Ark of the Covenant. They point us towards the how for enjoying the presence of God, particularly in the Old Testament. God says, I'm going to meet with you. I'm going to be with you. And this is how it's going to look. Now, we study these chapters because Christ, the New Testament fulfillment of these shadows, 
are best understood with a working knowledge of how the Old Testament shadows work, okay? So the Ark of the Covenant, the Holy of Holies, the curtains and the, the, the lampstand and the table of bread, all these things point towards Jesus, okay? So why do we study a place of worship that we no longer use? Why do we study furniture that we no longer use? Because it helps us to better understand Jesus, who we do worship and serve today, right? So uh, we appreciate Christ more. Our capacity to worship him more fully increases by understanding this history of God with us. And it's our history, right? Because what we've been saying all through our study in Exodus is that this isn't just about the people of Israel. We believe as Gentiles, we have been saved into the people of God. We've been adopted into this family, which makes their history our history now, right? This is our history as well. So this redemptive history of what it means for God to be with his people, this has super big application for us too. It helps us to understand Jesus better, helps us to worship him better because we understand God's plan of redemption more fully when we understand these shadows in the Old Testament. Now, the application that we're gonna see today is not to go searching for the Ark of the Covenant, right? It's not a magical box Uh, and we don't need it to enjoy God's presence today, right? We've already talked about like how the the Israelites were warned against wizardry and sorcery, right? So there's there's not an appeal to us to hopefully have archaeologists find the Ark of the Covenant one day, and all of a sudden it's going to produce a more deeper, meaningful presence of God. Israel mistakenly used the the Ark of the Covenant as a token of power themselves. If you read in the Old Testament, they would be in complete rebellion against God, not listening to him, not doing what he wanted. And then they would try to parade the Ark of the Covenant in front of their army and basically have God do what they wanted him to do for them. And and that never turned out good for them, right? The Philistines end up seizing the Ark of the Covenant and they think themselves that they can use it as a presence of God peace and basically subject him to their gods. And you may remember the story of, of them bringing the Ark of the Covenant into their temple to Dagon. And overnight, the, the, the idol kept falling down and worshiping uh, God's presence of the Ark of the Covenant, right? Like it demonstrated to the Philistines, hey, the God of Israel is greater than your God. Even if the Israelites aren't living as they should, Yahweh continues to be supreme, uh, many of you have probably seen the, the Indiana Jones movie, The Raiders of the Lost Ark. We as a family watched it this summer. It's a great movie. It's super entertaining. Uh, but the, the, the basis of finding the Ark of the Covenant and then it being able to be power that you willed for your use is just not true, right? So the German army in that movie hopes to find it to win the war, uh, and then it ends up wreaking havoc on them and their lives are taken, which does kind of depict what happens in the Old Testament when you take it lightly that God's judgment is seen. I tend to think that the Ark of the Covenant will never be found, never be discovered because it's no longer needed, right? Like it's been replaced. It was a shadow that points to Jesus. So the application is not to go looking for the Ark of the Covenant, nor is it to build the tabernacle once again. Instead, the application is that we find ourselves under a curse from being with God, And we see this curse depicted with the veils in the temple or the tabernacle, eventually the temple. The idea that you couldn't get to God. Even as God establishes his presence with his people, there's a curse that's being communicated that you don't have access to him. And yet what do we find in the New Testament? That Christ changes it. 
Christ rips the veil in two, and we do have access to God once again. So the application for us is to see that the curse is being broken, that the curse of Eden, where we were separated from God and we can't be with him, and then God reinitiates relationship with his people here by telling Moses, I am going to dwell with my people once again, and yet it's going to only be in a limited capacity. We're seeing the curse undone. We're seeing the curse being broken. We're seeing fellowship restored through the work of Jesus. That curtain is being torn down. Restoration to God's presence is our greatest need for our greatest joy. The promised land, which is what Israel's hoping for, it's not great unless God is with them there. You've heard some theologians talk about how uh, we should never desire heaven without Jesus, right? That heaven isn't heaven without Jesus, right? So we can long for our loved ones. We can long to be set free from sin, but ultimately our longing for the future is to be with Jesus, right? So Israel longs for the, the promised land, but God wants them to understand it's my presence that you must long for the most. That's what's most important. And so before they ever get to the promised land, he's establishing the fact that you need my presence for your joy to be complete. Let's look again at Exodus chapter 25, verse 21 and 22, because that's our key portion of our text today. And you shall put the mercy seat on the top of the ark. It's the lid of the ark. And in the ark, you shall put the testimony that I shall give you. There I will meet with you. It's in that location at the mercy seat between the cherubs that God is going to meet with his people. And it's from above the mercy seat between the two cherubim that are on the ark of the testimony that he will speak with you, Moses, about all that I will give you in commandment for the people of Israel. Note how this mercy seat is planned for before Israel even realizes its need for mercy. Right? As, as a teacher, it's, it's not uncommon for uh, you to maybe have a lesson plan and, and instruction that takes place, and then you give an assessment, and your kids don't do very good, right? And, and, they, and they fail it, or they perform less than what you were expecting. Oftentimes, teachers, teachers will give like a makeup assignment, right? Like, hey, you didn't do as good as I'd hoped. Here's, here's something that you can do to kind of improve your grade. That comes a lot of times at the end of semesters, right? We start looking at our grade books, and maybe you you have some sympathy for some kids that just aren't where you were hoping they were going to be. So let's give them some extra credit or let's give them a makeup opportunity to see if they can boost that grade a little bit. This isn't God's makeup assignment, right? Like he doesn't give them the law and say, be obedient. And then they drop the ball and fail and him think, okay, now what do we do? I guess we can make this ark and this mercy seat and we could offer a makeup assignment. This is planned before they ever actually need it. This is built into his plan of redemption. He recognizes he's a holy God and they are sinful people. And the mercy seat is the only way possible for him to commune with them. It's a place where justice and mercy collide together. It's where holiness and sin come together and find reconciliation. And it's through the blood it's through the blood, and, and it's temporarily through the blood of animals, right? So in the Old Testament, these animals are, are slaughtered, and the blood is put on the altar, and it's a temporary fix so that God's presence can be with his people. But it points to something greater. It points to a greater blood that's to come, and we know that to be through the blood of Christ. 
The key to our homecoming, the key to God being with us is realizing we are the problem for the separation, not him, right? He didn't lose his temper and kick us out of the Garden of Eden because he was having a bad day. It's because we had a bad day. We sinned against his holiness. We rebelled and we disobeyed him, right? And sometimes our culture and, and the enemy would like to twist it into us thinking that we're, we're primarily good people, that, that we really shouldn't have our sin held against us, that we're not as bad as, as the Bible would try to portray us to be. The key to our homecoming is realizing we're the problem. We are why the separation exists. There's a football player right now, C.J. Stroud. He's a rookie quarterback for the Houston Texans. He's having a, a great rookie year. The media has jumped on board with the idea that he is separated from his father right now. His father's in prison, right? His father has never seen him play a meaningful football game. And so the media is kind of pitching this idea of like how sad for this guy to be so successful and all he wants is for his dad to see him in person play a football game. And so there's almost this, this pitch of like our justice system is wrong for keeping these two people separated. And I've seen some other guys write that say, here's what this dude did. Like, here's why he's in prison. Here's why he is serving the sentence. Is there separation? Yeah. Is that sad? Absolutely. But why is there separation? Because this man made a choice. He made a decision for that separation. He chose this way of life, which now has consequences. We are the same way. Our choices have consequences, and it's created separation from our Heavenly Father. And the only way we get back to him, the only way there is a true homecoming of God being with us is if we realize we're the problem. Right? It's us humbly coming and recognizing our need for a Savior. Let's look at our, our, the notes that I've got for you today. Uh, number one, understand your need to be with God. Understand your need to be with God. It's our greatest need as his creation because it's the thing that was taken away from us back in the Garden of Eden. In Eden, number one, we are created to be with God. Israel's been set free from their exile in Egypt, but this is not their greatest exile to be set free from. They need a return to Eden. Think about what, what happened there in the garden. We were banished. We were banished to the east of Eden, the Bible tells us, with cherubim being established to guard and protect us from returning to God too early. Genesis chapter 3, verse 22 then the Lord God said, behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man and at the east of the garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. We were removed from his presence. We were banished. And the story of the Bible is how God plans to reestablish his presence with sinful man. His presence must be restored if he is to win, right? That's why we have such great hope and encouragement that God's plan of salvation works because if it doesn't, he loses. This isn't a side project or a side deal that he's working on over here, the saving of his people. It's what he does. And he made a promise to Satan in the garden that he was going to reestablish his presence with the seed of the woman. 
And he was going to send someone that would ultimately crush the head of the serpent, ultimately win the victory for his people to come back to him. So the story of the Bible is how God does that, how God reestablishes his presence with his people through the saving work of Christ. That's the theme. God taking up residence with his people again and doing it through Jesus. J.T. English, who's a pastor out West, says the mission of God is the presence of God in all of creation. The mission of God. What's he doing? He is establishing his presence once again in all of creation. And it's not by accident that every time they were to set up the tabernacle, <clears throat> it had one way of entrance, right? One way for you to get into the tabernacle. And it was always to be set up where that gate faced east. Why is that important? Because the symbolism is that we were removed from Garden Eden eastward. And so the idea is, is that we've been exiled to the east and we are to come back in. We're to be reinvited into fellowship with him. Cherubim were set up before the flood to guard the tree of life. Right, the Garden of Eden is gone. The cherubim are no longer there because the flood would have wiped it away. But even as the tabernacle is reestablished, look at the consistent theme of cherubim that still stand, that still guard the presence. And yet now there's, a, there's an opening, right? It's not that the cherubim stand at the gate and say, nobody gets in. That's what you would have encountered going back to the Garden of Eden. What you find now is that, hey, there, there, there's an entrance here. We proceed with caution, but there is a way. There's a way that's being made to get back to him. In Eden, we were created to be with God. Number two, tabernacle, we are called to be with God. God is the one who's reestablishing his presence. The chapter starts with him telling Moses, you're going to appeal to the people to create a contribution to me in which we're going to use the materials to build a tabernacle that I may dwell in their midst. He's reestablishing his presence. He's allowing his desires to be with us, to play out with his next steps for restoration. There's a lot of similarities to the Eden experience that we see here. In Genesis, there's seven speaking acts by God where it says, God said. Here we have seven speaking acts as you work through these chapters where it says the Lord spoke or he said to Moses. We've already talked about the symbolism of the cherubim being in both places. We also see the, the tree of life and, and the lampstand that's in the, the tabernacle is constructed to look like a tree. Some of the same stones that are called upon to build the tabernacle are the special uh, stones that are found in the Garden of Eden in Genesis chapter 2. You even have a similar picture of fall that takes place, right? In Genesis, creation is elevated above God. As all this is playing out on the mountain, what happens below Man, Israel is elevating creation above God once again. They too demonstrate what it looks like to fall in the midst of God's presence. Israel has seen the presence of God on the mountain. And what God is doing now with the tabernacle is, hey, yeah, we're about to pack up and we're about to go. We're going to head to the promised land, but we're not leaving this behind. This whole experience of you seeing the, the awe and the glory of God on the mountain, that presence goes with you, right? Um, people make a lot of money off of souvenir shops, right? You go and you experience something and you want to take something with you to remember it, right? So that's what the souvenir shop is. 
I, anytime my kids go into a souvenir shop, if we're going to buy something, I try to direct them to something that ties in with where we've been. Because a lot of people just make money off of souvenir shops by just putting some stuffed animals in there, right? And it has nothing to do with where you've been, right? But your kids just want stuffed animals. And I'm like, look, we're not going to buy a stuffed animal that has no like, connection with where we've just been, right? It's as though God's giving his people a to-go box. Here's how you're going to continue to experience my presence, right? My mom used to always love to go to the beach one last day, right, before we would leave our vacation and take some sand with her, right? She'd put it in a, in a cup or a jar or something. It's like, I just need to take a little bit of this with me so I can remember it. God's like, you're not leaving my presence behind at the mountain. I'm giving you the tabernacle because wherever you go going forward, you set this up, my presence will be there, right? It's his presence packaged for them to go with them the rest of the way. And he's laid the groundwork for this material collection. Think about all the the preciousness that was collected from Egypt as they left. Even the Amalekites who tried to attack them and they won that victory with Moses' hands being raised, right? They would have gotten spoils from that war. All of those things given to them by God and now God's gonna call them to give back to him for the establishment of his dwelling place. The details of chapter 25, 26, and 12, they're important. We're not gonna read them this morning, but they are important. Why? Because they point to the seriousness of God with his salvation. It's a calculated salvation. It's a planned salvation. It's a specific salvation. It's a successful salvation. These details remind us that he isn't to be approached casually or spontaneously, and he doesn't get approached on our terms, but his. And every piece of the tabernacle that you can read about points to him, right? There's this table of bread and it pictures provision and fellowship. 12 loaves that would have been displayed there every week. The priest would eat them at the end of the week. The significance of the 12 being that every person of every tribe of Israel was welcomed at the table of God and that he was providing for them daily. God doesn't eat the bread, right? It's an acknowledgement that you have provided bread for us, the lampstand, this undying light where the priest would tend to it and keep it lit at all times. It's a sign of his presence. Revelation 2 talks about the lampstands of the churches, right? And it's symbolic of his presence with the church. And you don't want to lose your lampstand. Really, I think it's a picture that, that as we're coming home from our exile, we walk in and what do we find? We find a light on, we find a meal prepared right? We find God waiting, inviting us back from the exile that we created. The gate is open. The tabernacle was great, but it's filled with limitations, right? Let's look at a a picture of the, or a diagram of of what we would find in the tabernacle. And this is an, an aerial view so we can kind of see ourselves walking in, but you would enter the gate and the bronze and altar would be there where a lot of the sacrifices were offered for the common people, the, the laver there for the washings. And then it was the priesthood who would be given entrance into the actual tabernacle structure. So you've got this fence that surrounds the tabernacle, right? And that's where the common people could be. And then as you get into the deeper parts of the tabernacle, the, the value of the, the uh, materials being used increases, Right? There, there's, a, there's a holiness increases, a, holy, a sense of holiness that increases as well, right? Because the, the, the level of people that can enjoy the deeper parts decreases, just like we see on the mountain, right? Where the people can gather at the base and then the leadership can take a step forward and then it's ultimately Moses 
who enters into that equivalent of the Holy of Holies on the mountain. You find the table of showbread, the, the, the golden candlestick, the altar of incense, which is later mentioned. And then it's that Holy of Holies where you enter into to find the Ark of the Covenant, a place that was visited once a year by the highest priest. And blood was offered there for the, the sins of the people. You'll see a description there, what's in the Ark of the Covenant. He talks about the testimony that'll be given to him. Eventually, the Ten Commandments end up in there. Eventually, the budding rod of of Aaron ends up in there. And then also manna to remember God's provision is also mentioned being there in the book of Hebrews. But there's limitations in this tabernacle, right? Like we shouldn't look at that and say, man, I wish we could go back to the glory days of that, right? Like you don't get to enjoy all of that. There's curtains that are separating. There's there's prohibitions for you being able to get all the way in because of your sin. It's great. It's a step forward. We're a step closer to Eden, but there's limitations. There's comfort in knowing that God is here, but there's fear in knowing that we can't quite be with him. The access is limited. The curtain barriers the cherubim limitations. It's not just the cherubim on the Ark of the Covenant that would have warned you. The curtains had the cherubim interwoven into it. That was part of their instructions to to make these curtains and to put cherubim into the curtains. A visual reminder, you're blocked. You created this separation. You can't come back on your own terms. God's presence in the tabernacle paves the way for the greater next step. And that leads us to number three, Christ. We are saved to be with God. Our ultimate understanding of God with us comes from Emmanuel on earth. In John chapter one, verse 14, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. The Greek word for dwelt is the same word used in the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament. The the literal translation would be here, the word became flesh and tabernacled among us. Jesus is the tabernacle. Jesus is God's presence with us, right? So why do we study the Old Testament if if it's no longer applicable, if we don't need the tabernacle anymore? It's because it helps us to appreciate Jesus. Think about like if we were still under the old system, constantly having to bring sacrifices, constantly having to set up this temple or this tabernacle, constantly having to think about how we couldn't gain access all the way to God. Sometimes we fail to think about how long they had the tabernacle, right? It's not until Solomon comes on the scene that a temple's actually built, but for, for thousands of years, Right? All through the times of the judges and even through the, the reigns of Saul and David, like the tabernacle's there. And it's pointing them to the need for something greater. And Jesus shows up on the scene and he tabernacles with us. He's the better bread that we see in the tabernacle because he's the bread of life. He is the light of the world who offers better sacrifices with greater blood that has a lasting impact. First John chapter 1 echoes the things that we see here in John chapter one. First John chapter one, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest and we've seen it and testify to it and proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the father 
and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you. Why? So that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. John says, this is how you have access to the Father. It's through Jesus who came and was made manifest for us. He came to tabernacle with us so that we could have entrance into the presence of God. It's only through him that God's presence can truly be established with his people. Again, Colossians chapter one. Colossians chapter one, verse 19. For in him, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him, to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of the cross. God in human flesh comes so that we can be with God once again. And it's through his work that the architecture of the tabernacle is altered forever. Think about that. It's through Jesus that this tabernacle that we were looking at is completely altered forever. Matthew chapter 27, the veil was torn at his death. Access was made possible. The way home is fully open now. Number four, the church. We are established for others to be with God. The Bible says that we are now the temple. We are now the tabernacle where God dwells, his presence on earth, and we have the mission of inviting others to experience him. First Corinthians Chapter three, where we've been studying as a church in our small groups. Verse 16, do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him for God's temple is holy and you are that temple. Ephesians two talks about how Christ is the head of the church and he's building up this structure. He's building up this body. He's building up the church as the representation of his presence here on earth. And why are we so needed? Why are we so necessary? Because we call others into that fellowship. We are the the gateway for people to come back to God. We have the, the message of the gospel to share with others Jesus, to share with others the truth of what we're seeing here. It's how God reestablishes his presence going forward. He's using the church. Matthew chapter five, verse 14 You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Lastly, number five, we are destined to be with God. Glory. Through salvation, we enjoy a presence with God now that will only increase and never decrease. We are only going to ever experience more of the presence of God than we do right now, never less. We're never as believers going to be exiled again from his presence. We're never going to be sent away from his presence. 1 Thessalonians 4.17 reminds us that when he comes back, which is our great hope as believers, that when he comes back, we will forever be with the Lord. Right? It says that there's coming a day when he will return from the clouds 
And the dead in Christ will rise first. And then those who are alive and well will be caught up together with them. All of us with brand new bodies and all to ever be with the Lord forever. It's our hope. Revelation 21 verse one, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. Robin read from verse 22 through 27 earlier. There's no tabernacle there. There's no temple, right? Because the Lord is dwelling with his people and it's not needed. That's what our hope is. That's what we're longing for. This glory state where we are with God forever, where his presence is fully reestablished. It's what we are as a church in our mission statement, right? It's why we planted Sovereign Hope Church. Our mission statement says that we are a body of believers who've been saved by the work of Jesus Christ and are committed to spreading joy and contentment in him as we learn to hold fast to the hope of his second coming together. We wanna be a place where the second coming of Jesus is talked about regularly, right? It's not an afterthought. It's not something that might happen. It's what we're longing for. It's what we live today for, that we want to be with him forever. We wanna hold fast in the midst of temptations and trials and challenges with the hope that he's coming back and we will always be with him. Number two, and we'll hit this quickly. Number two, understand if you are truly with God. Are you truly with God? We've seen that God wants to be with us and that we need to be with him. We've seen that all through scripture now. It starts in Eden. The next step takes place here with the tabernacle, points to Jesus who comes, who then establishes the church and gives us this hope of glory, this picture in Revelation that the dwelling place of God will be with man. But are we truly with God now? Number one, he meets us at a place of judgment and mercy. We're told that he will meet the people at this mercy seat of the Ark of the Covenant. It's a place where judgment, justice, and mercy collide together. The God who desires to be with us is a holy God. The structure of the tabernacle teaches us this otherness of him, right? There's separation established as you would enter that east gate. You're met with a presence of blood and sacrifice at the bronze altar. That atonement is needed for everyone. No blood, no forgiveness, Hebrews 9.22 tells us. Imagine that scene as you step in, like imagine the scene for your kids that you would try to bring to worship at the tabernacle. You're met immediately with the stench of dying animals and blood being shed and and work taking place where animals are being killed and it would be a a, a strong reminder of your sin, strong reminder of your need for salvation. It's a holy God that, that wants to be with us, but it's also a God who desires to be with us that's merciful. There's a mercy seat that's established that gives us the hope that we need. That picture is described for us of what the Ark of the Covenant looks like. 
It's a golden box. Those items are placed inside the box, but the the significant piece of the box is that top part, the, the mercy seat, where those cherubim remind us of our sin, and yet their posture reminds us that there's something greater than our sin. Right? Those cherubim aren't the ultimate authority. Those cherubim aren't the ultimate beings. Right? They are bowing in submission to a presence of God that we are told hovers right there above that seat. The plan is to meet with Moses the mediator at a place where mercy rather than judgment will take place. Holiness and mercy, Eden and exile, they're colliding here. And it's the people of God that deserve the judgment and it's the people of God who escape it. It's a place where mercy and grace and slowness to anger and abounding love are mixed with justice that will not let the guilty go free. That sounds familiar. That's God's description of himself coming later here in Exodus. Who is he? He's a God who's full of mercy and grace. He's slow to anger. He's abounding in steadfast love and mercy. But he's not a God who just lets the guilty go free. He has to deal with it. He has to deal with sin because he's a just and good God. And he does it. He does it temporarily through animals, and then he ultimately does it through Christ. The cherubim remind us that we don't belong here, but their posture reminds us there's someone greater who summons us anyway. It's here that we find refuge and rest when we find the presence of God once again. Psalm chapter 61, verse 4. Psalm chapter 61, verse 4 says, Let me dwell in your tent or your tabernacle forever. Let me take refuge where? under the shelter of your wings, right? Let me find refuge and hope and and salvation under those wings right there where you meet me with your mercy. As glorious as the ark was, the mercy seat at the cross is greater, right? It's in Romans 3.25 that we learn that Jesus, Jesus is our propitiation. He is the wrath satisfier. God put forward as a propitiation by his blood, Jesus, to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Hebrews chapter Hebrews chapter 9, verse 11. Hebrews chapter nine, verse 11. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 19. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience, and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. That's the hope that we have as Christians, that we don't have to leave the presence of God ever again because Jesus has opened the door and given us full access 
to him. He meets us at that place of judgment and mercy. And for us to enter, it requires us entering, knowing that we're the cause of the separation and that we need him to fix it. We need his mercy. And then lastly, number two, he meets us with instruction, provision, and guidance. He meets us at this place with judgment and mercy, but there's also instruction, provision, and guidance that's given here as well. And that's represented in the the items that are given to us. The instruction given to us in the law, the provision of the manna, the guidance when Israel needed wisdom and direction from him through that budding rod. The ark points towards the holiness of God and that isn't changed and it's not minimized now with Christ, right? So just because Christ comes doesn't mean God's not holy anymore. The ark should remind us of how holy he is, right? The poles that were provided were due to the caution needed in handling the box. You would die if you touched it, right? You can read about uh, Uzzah in 2 Samuel 6 who touched it and died. The holiness of God is still intact. And what do we find in the ark? We find his instruction, his provision, and his guidance. Here's what I put in my notes to kind of tie all this together as far as what are we supposed to do in our salvation If we truly have the presence of God, we can't rightly claim the favorable presence of God if we have no desire for his instruction, if we're not willing to trust his provision and guidance. We can't claim his presence. First John talks all about Jesus at the beginning, and then it goes on to tell us, this is what you look like if you follow him. You obey his commands. You live in the light. You don't walk in darkness. Right? You can't claim the blood of Jesus and have it not impact your life. For truly coming to the, the mercy seat, for truly coming for forgiveness, then we also come to embrace his desires for our life. We, we come to embrace his instructions. Tell me how to live. We come trusting his provision. Give me what you want to give me. Right? We come trusting his guidance. Take me wherever you want to. We talk a lot here about the the lot that God gives to us, right? The lot lines, the the circumstances, the routes that he takes us on. If we truly come to the Ark of the Covenant, we truly come to the cross, we truly come to the mercy seat, we come and we want all of him. Not just the forgiveness piece, we want his presence going with us forward as well. These items reminded Israel of where they'd come from and were reminders of God's faithfulness, that he is worthy of worship. And those things scream true today as well. We worship him, we follow him. Why? His instructions are good. His provision is right. His guidance is always there in the appropriate time for us. We come to that mercy seat for forgiveness and we come embracing a desire to follow him. Wherever the lamb goes, we follow him. Application questions for you to kind of ask yourself. Are you enjoying God's presence in your life based on the parameters established by God, right? The, the parameters are, you're the problem, and he's done everything to fix you. You come humbly to him, he fixes you. Number one, have you met him at a place where his mercy collides with the justice you deserve? Have you met him at a place where you put your faith and trust in Jesus? And you know if you have or not, by number two, have you given yourself to his presence by following him? If you've truly met him, you follow him. That's the indicator, First John tells us. You want to know if you have fellowship with him? You want to know if you have the presence of God in your life? 
Just look and see what you're doing. What's your relationship to the world? What's your relationship to others? Right? Do you love others? Do you serve others? Do you care for others? Do you reject the things of this world? Or do you follow the idols? Let's pray together. God, we thank you that you continued to desire to be with us even when we demonstrated a desire not to be with you in the Garden of Eden. Lord, we thank you that from that day forward, you've been working to reestablish your presence in the life of your people. God, we thank you that step by step, little by little, you opened the way back to you. God, we thank you for our understanding of the tabernacle, one of those initial steps of reestablishing your presence and what it points us to in Christ. God, we're thankful for the further revelation that we now have today, that we don't need the tabernacle, we don't need the table of showbread, we don't need the lampstands, we don't need the Ark of the Covenant anymore. All those things find their fulfillment in Jesus. We thank you for your son. We thank you for the mercy seat found at the cross. We thank you for his blood being shed on our behalf. We thank you that you worked to fix the problem, which was us. We created the separation. It wasn't a problem with the justice system. It was a problem with our actions, our behavior, our rebellion. And you could have left us banished and exiled. You could have kept the cherubim guarding any possible entrance to you. And yet you opened the way. We thank you. We praise you for that. We thank you for those that you've saved in this room. God, for those that aren't believers, we pray that you'd call them today. Help them to see that their sin separates them from you and their good works can never restore it. Help them to see that it's only by the blood and work of Jesus that they can re-enter fellowship with you. And God, as people who claim to fellowship with you, help us to see that, that if we, we really want to say that, then we've got to follow you. We've got to yield to your instructions. We've got we to trust your provision and your guidance. Lord, help us to desire all of your presence in our life, not just partly. Lord, we thank you for your judgment and your mercy and the sparing of us in the midst of all of it. We give you praise and glory and honor to Jesus this morning. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Sovereign Hope Church podcast. We trust that you've been encouraged by the word. For more information about our church, please visit our website at www.sovhope.org. Again, that's www.sovhope.org.